Hello and welcome to Fertility Talks, the Therapy Fertility Podcast. I'm your host, Renee Von Medin, and this season I'll be sitting down with none other than Medical Director of Therapy Fertility, Dr. John Kennedy. Each episode, we will be chatting all things fertility, trying to conceive, and much, much more. We hope that through this series, through honest conversation and information, we can strip away some of the stigma that sometimes comes hand in hand with infertility and fertility treatment in Ireland. Welcome back to another episode of Fertility Talks. And this week we're going to be chatting about infertility. Super. What causes it and how do we treat it? <clears throat> so let's 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 talk. What is let's infertility? What is dive dive right yeah. in. So the World Health Organization, we take our cues from them, they say it's a disease. It is. And that's really important to to classify it as a disease in the first instance because it gives some agency to people who are suffering from it. You suffer from a disease. It also puts pressure on legislative bodies, governments, mm -hmm. to apply funding for treatment and resources if you acknowledge it's a disease. Infertility is being unable to conceive after a period of trying. So how we usually break it down is if you're over the age of 35 and you've been trying for six months or if you're under the age of 35 because something magic happens to you on your 35th birthday obviously <laughs> but if you're under the age of 35 and you've been trying for a year we call that infertility now just to be really simple yeah what does trying mean <laughs> unprotected intercourse yeah. regular unprotected intercourse and we can circle back into that because i think that's that's a real kind of can of worms question how yeah. long have you been trying for yeah yeah and how, how often and all uh, of that so, yeah I kind of like to shy away from the word infertility a little bit. It's very obvious that if you've had your testes removed, if you've had your ovaries removed, if you don't have a uterus, you are infertile. Mm -hmm. The fundamental It's not going building to happen blocks. no yeah. matter how often you try. The vast majority of people are subfertile. And what does that fertile. mean? It may be less likely, not impossible, but less okay. likely for you to conceive in any given time frame. So when you're thinking, if you're thinking in terms of I am infertile, like, OK, both your tubes are blocked or gone. Mm -hmm. You are infertile. Your tubes are open. You've been trying for, say, two years. It hasn't happened. I'm infertile. Well, you mightn't be infertile. You might just be a bit unlucky. Yeah. So yeah. how you think about those does should and does have an impact on how you might manage it and how you might approach it. But generally, we say six months or a year. But honestly, we'd like to think that things are progressing a little bit and awareness of fertility, not awareness of infertility per se, but awareness of fertility, the causes of issues that may arise, when to start thinking about it, is growing. Mm -hmm. And you should be having an awareness of that before you run into problems. Sure. I think. How many people run into problems? One in four to one in five couples. Yeah, generally. that was my next question. How common is it? Yeah, one in four to one in five couples usually. That's what we say. 90%. That's massive. Yeah, but it's a bit of a, it's a broad number. Mm. Um, most couples will conceive, 90% of couples, this is an old statistic mm -hmm. and I really don't know how reliable it is anymore. 90% of couples conceive within the first year of trying, 95% within the first two years of trying so it's half of the rest if you follow me after that in years three four and five you start hitting the law of diminishing returns so if i see a couple who have been trying say for seven or eight years yeah. to conceive and i've never that's a 
that's a big red la- red flag for me. It's a there's something going on. Sure, there, there's a there's probably a huge difference between trying for a year and trying for seven years. Exactly, and well, I mean, I think for a start, that comes back to that word trying. Mm. Year, month one, month two, month three, you're diligent. Month ten through twelve, you're less diligent. I can only imagine by year seven, you're probably a little bit uh, apathetic to a, to the trying. Run out of steam. Yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, and just to kind of circle back, so say if uh, a man and a woman are trying, mm-hmm. um, what is the likelihood that they would get pregnant month one? Because I think sometimes people think you do it once and you're pregnant. Yeah. So uh, much as people don't like to hear this, the number we think is about 17%, one seven. So it's not high. No, it's very low. Uh, that accumulates. It, sure. it adds to itself every month. So it builds up, but it's not a high number to, to start off with. And it means you're more likely not to get pregnant than to get pregnant. Now, part of that is due to the fact that an awful lot of pregnancies will fail before they even become pregnancies. And you'll never know. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So total miscarriage rates, we quote miscarriage rates being 20, 25% in young people, but it's actually probably close to 50, 60%. Because a lot of people might miscarry and you would just think it's your next period. Or the embryo or, yeah. fails before it ever implants sure. on that day five. But I mean, yeah. I suppose technically it made it to the womb, didn't mm-hmm. implant all the rest. Where do you call yeah. pregnancy? Okay. So we've talked about this, how long someone should wait before they, they start looking for some answers or talking to a fertility specialist so you say you apply that the general rule of thumb is that six months to Mm. one year rule i don't like that Mm. i'm biased put my hand up i work in a field where all i see day in day is couples who are struggling to Mm. conceive and their universal mantra is i wish i had started earlier i wish i knew then what i know now um so how could we change that Awareness, education, okay. early testing. Uh, for males, it's a semen analysis. For women, it's a blood test looking at the ovarian reserve. And th- those, both of those things are very straightforward, right? Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. There's, there's capillary testing, little finger prick uh, testing for AMH now, and it's, it's very reliable. And I think in as much as AMH can ever be said to be very reliable... But I, I, I wish people would do that earlier. I really, I really And what do. would that information, so say if a couple presented to you, they had AMH and semen analysis done, and then they got the results back, what could they do with that information? Well, probably nothing, which yeah. is the right answer. It's the right, are you trying, that's what we would to, are you trying to conceive? Yeah. No, then off you go. Well, these results would suggest to me that as of now, you don't have any problems. You're unlikely to run into problems from these points of view mm-hmm. over the next while. So hopefully when you are trying, when you are it trying, will it won't be an issue. You know, it's it's like any screening test. It's like having a cervical or a colonoscopy, smear, or, whatever. Or, a colonoscopy yeah, yeah. Or, or a mammogram or something like that. You're doing it in the hopes that it'll be entirely normal and you forget mm-hmm. about it for a while. And then you go back to it and you do it again in the mm-hmm. hopes that it'll be entirely normal and you forget about it for sure. a while. And you just ha- you you incorporate that awareness of your fertility potential into your life what do you do then if the result is abnormal well then you manage that you either go on to second level testing which is what you do with most screening tests if you get an abnormality it doesn't mean there's anything wrong just means maybe we need to look at this a little bit closer and if it does turn out that you've got a low reserve if it does turn out that there's a low count or there's another issue then if you aren't actively trying it affords you an opportunity to be proactive Mm -hmm. maybe if it's a sperm issue maybe there's things you can fix in your diet your lifestyle smoking alcohol you can bring your sperm count back up you can get an awareness are there other stressors in there you can things things can get better if your ovarian reserve is low that's a difficult one to fix but you have 
agency again over it. You could elect to go, okay, I don't want to have children now, so I might freeze some eggs. I might be aware, or I might think, well, I, I am in a committed relationship. I wasn't planning on starting a family for another two years, but really what was stopping me from bringing that time frame forward? And if it's something critical, fine. If it's something like, oh, no, I want to progress my career, I want to do this, that, and the other, well, then you at least get to weigh up those options side by side. And it's seldom as clear as if you want to have a child, you have to do it this year. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. seldom it's seldom that, that clear. But if you parse it out in those terms, that can be a useful thought exercise, I think, mm -hmm. to tell you, right, what's what's important. Yeah. It's all fun and games till you get told what you can't have. And is there any, uh, like, physical signs of infertility before someone would get to the kind of testing stage <clears> or <throat> if they haven't really even been trying? Sure. So there are, there are conditions. There's two conditions that are probably worth talking about that women have. One is polycystic ovarian syndrome. The other is endometriosis, both of which could potentially have symptoms. And how common are those? Oh, very. I mean, well, PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, suffers from a lack of clear definition. So at its most broad definition, up to 40% of all women could be said. Yeah, to I'm pretty sure I was told I had that at some point. And everybody I meet who's been given a diagnosis of PCOS tells exactly the same story. I was told I had PCOS and then I was told I didn't have PCOS. <laughs> so if you go back to when I was learning this stuff, in order to be diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome, you had to hit every box of about 10 different boxes. You had to have no more than three periods a year. You had to be overweight. You had to have extra hair growth. You had to have specific hormonal imbalances. Mm -hmm. You had to have specific ultrasound appearances of your ovaries. And if you didn't have them, you didn't have PCOS, which is nonsense because somebody might have nine out of 10 of them and yeah. they definitely had PCOS, but sorry, don't qualify. Don't just, tick my box. <laughs> just daft, indeed. Um, now we know that what we used to call PCOS is actually probably four or five different conditions that are all been rammed into the same bag and mislabeled. So there's high androgenic and low androgenic PCOS where people have high testosterone or low mm -hmm. testosterone. It behaves in different ways. So the label is really, really unimportant. And that's what I'd love to see people move away from. Oh, I have been diagnosed with this. And stop. Are you trying to get pregnant? Are you menstruating? They're the two key questions. Are you overweight? Is it difficult for you to lose weight? How do you tackle the specific issue that is on the table as opposed to, I have specific issues. I need to get a label, then mm -hmm. I need to manage that disease. No, 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 no. You need to manage you. So if you aren't getting periods and you're not trying to get pregnant at all, then it's maybe not a terrible idea to go on something like the combined oral contraceptive pill, keep your estrogen ticking over, keep the lining mm -hmm. ticking over, maintain good, healthy bone density and good, healthy cardiovascular systems great. If you are trying to get pregnant, well, you're not ovulating every month, so that's going to be an issue. I mean, if you're not ovulating, or if you have no idea when you're ovulating, you're only ovulating twice a year, instead of getting 12 bites of the cherry every year, you're yeah. getting two. So there's medications, and that can be quite easily fixed. Are you overweight? Are you underweight? Can you fix that? Yeah. How can you fix that? That's not an easy or a quick process. Mm -hmm. Putting on weight for people who are very, very thin can be extraordinarily challenging as well. Something we all tend to forget about. Yeah. People who are overweight, who have high BMIs, especially people with PCOS, and it's something you will see that's very characteristic of this cohort, is they struggle to lose weight. Yeah. And your heart goes out to them because if you are overweight and you tell people that you are struggling to lose weight, mm. there's everybody has that judgment then. Yeah, sure you are. Yeah, that's because you 
That's because you're yeah. eating too much. You're not moving enough. You know, it's well, not, yeah, it's not, not we a have struggle. A phobic society. Exactly. You know. So, but it is. It is. It is technically harder for them to to move that fat mass into muscle mass than it is for somebody else. Their and is that all due to like a hormonal hormonal dysregulation? Is the easiest way I can put it. And it, it's not impossible, but it takes more work mm. in an already difficult environment. And then, if you're adding to that the fact that you're trying to do that in order to conceive, it's you just know, this and whole. It's, and it's never only one thing, yeah. is it? You know, I mean, everything feeds feeds into the other things. So, so that can be a challenge as well. So you have to decide, right? What's the problem, and what's what? What, am, what are we trying to tackle? What's here? the goal? Yeah, exactly correct. And that's that's what PCOS is. But the the label is tremendously unhelpful. Mm. For me, I want to know how long you're, I want to know what your hormone results are. I want to know what your ovarian reserve is. I want to know what your goals are. What do you, how quickly do you want to be pregnant? How much effort do you want to put into it? And then you can drop a plan, almost a, a series of plans, a menu almost of, right, yeah, where do you want to put your scale? Yeah. yeah. PCOS is very, very treatable, you know? So I, I think. I think most people who have that kind of issue, they do very well. Okay. And if so, we, we mentioned irregular periods. If yes. someone has an irregular period, does that mean they're going to have trouble conceiving or that they're not ovulating? Oh, God, no. I mean, and, and I think the other the other thing to note, if you have a regular period, I'm 85 to 90 percent sure that you're ovulating every, yeah. every period. But one of the misnomers is that on average cycle is a 28 day cycle. Mm-hmm. So everybody thinks you ovulate two weeks after your period. You don't. You ovulate two weeks before your period. Okay. But on a 28-day cycle, it's the same on both sides. But if you've got a 40-day cycle, you're probably ovulating late. You're probably ovulating around day 25. Sure, because it's before the period. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what triggers. So you're spending a longer time in that follicular phase, growing that follicle up before it releases. So long cycles. But if it's a... <laughs> people, medicine defines and again this is old white dude stuff <laughs> defines an irregular cycle as anything i think outside sort of 24 to 36 days oh so that would be a lot yeah most, yeah you've all, you've all got a regular cycle it's fine it's like i really don't feel like i do last week last month it was 25 days now it's 35 days it yeah. doesn't sound regular to me ah you're fine so but i guess what, when you're thinking about things physiologically what control i've had what can throw your cycle away? I've had three people in the last two days say to me that ever since they got their vaccine, their cycles have been out of whack. Yeah. I don't know of any evidence. I don't know of any research that's been done around this space. I don't know if it's coincidental. We know people, a lot of things can affect cycles, so it's possible. But it, it goes through, there's a lot of subtlety to this. Sure. Lots of things can can throw people. Yeah, like stress and sickness and... You know, life. all of the th- life, life, just, life. you know, all the things that that affect your body so, in yeah. other ways, you know. But if you're not, if you don't have a regular cycle, it can, of course, be more difficult to conceive because I can't speak with the same level of surety that you are ovulating and or that the environment is correct for for the, the embryo to implant. OK, so let's talk about endometriosis. So, OK, well, first and foremost, what is it? Hmm. So. The endometrium is the lining on the inside of the womb. It's a really specific type of tissue, and it does amazing things. The uterus is an amazing it's magic. Organ. It's really an amazing organ. Like a uterus is normally about yay size and about the size of a. Oh, it's incredible. Um, what do we say? A small melon. I remember trying to describe ovaries, and I couldn't. I was like, you know, don't say walnuts, don't say walnuts, walnuts. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, 
this finding the appropriate size fruit is just a ridiculous game. Don't you love when you, they do like you know fruit for babies as they grow? Or like you? Oh yeah. I, I, oh yeah. Sorry, this is completely digressing, but no, no, no. I had an app for you know telling me what my baby was as huh. they were growing, and you could change it so it would either show you the fruit or it would show you the animal. Oh wow! The animal version, the and it was animal. all these like really random like like weasels and like weird. But at least the fruit is generally <laughs> regularly shaped. I know. Like I mean, the you don't animals. want to think you're you know, <laughs> oh it's it's a weasel now. It really. It wow. was really weird. It was like, well, maybe if it was like squished right up. Yeah, it was very strange. Oh, wow. But like all the weird and wonderful um, fruits that oh, you yeah. can... Com- kumquats and kiwis. Yeah, 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 yeah You know yeah, what yeah. world yeah. you're living in now, don't you? So what yeah. size would a, a uterus be? A uterus is, is, is probably the size of a grapefruit, give or take. And would that expand during a cycle? No. It would just but during a pregnancy, through. obviously, oh, yeah. it gets substantially bigger. What it does during a cycle is the inside of the womb grows and then sheds so as the egg is developing the lining of the womb is thickening and thickening thickening. then the egg releases and over those next few days the lining of the womb becomes receptive so the embryo that comes into it is a window of implantation about five days or so an embryo comes in it's ready to accept it so the only reason it's growing its lining is in case there's a pregnancy yeah we are called we're a hemochorionic species which means to say every month we develop the lining of the womb and then it sheds off it's quite an inefficient system Mm. but it's a really good nurturing environment for for an embryo to go into it means there's a huge rich blood supply which allows development of very strong fetuses yeah yeah and that's that's how it's happened evolutionary we think speaking so if a pregnancy goes in then the lining holds and the progesterone and hcg hormones hold on to it if a pregnancy doesn't go in then it sheds off. Okay. So, so what happens if you have endometriosis? So if you have endometriosis, that very specific type of tissue, which should only ever occur in the uterus, occurs outside the uterus, in the ovaries, on the fallopian tubes, on the ligaments, on the bowel. Uh, you can even get it in scar tissue. Oh. You can get it in gums. It's rarer, obviously. Uh, in belly buttons. And every month, what that tissue responds to the same hormonal hormonally mediated cycle so it grows and it sheds but of course it doesn't shed because there's nowhere for it to shed so if it's in like a fallopian tube where is it, it going ju- it just causes it just causes irritation hmm. you can get some bleeding and it'll be absorbed in the peritoneum in the ovary you get cysts forming in the ovary and they're called chocolate cysts which is a terrible misnomer well that's cause, terrible because that sounds lovely yeah it ain't um they're they're, they're filled with this horrible brown sticky hmm. fluid and what that is that's altered blood because every month that little bit of endometrial tissue grows bleeds sheds and it just stays there just stays there and it, so it gets encapsulated and walled off by the ovary and then that cyst gets bigger and bigger and bigger and of course this is all filled with these inflammatory markers and these high cytokines and things of that that ilk so it can cause scarring it can cause even even with mild endometriosis you can get severe fertility changes but at its most severe at stage four endometriosis the pelvis can be what's called frozen and filled with this horrible rigid scar tissue which prevents anything from from working well the way we grade endometriosis is on a one to four scale, which is based on surgical observation of what we can see. The problem is that the degree of subfertility that's caused by endometriosis correlates very poorly with the grading. Mm. 
So on one end of the spectrum, you could have people with very severe endometriosis who are getting pregnant. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have people with very what's called mild endometriosis who can have very severe symptoms or real fertility issues. And yet they get told when they have their surgery or laparoscopy or what have you, oh, no, your endometriosis is very mild. And they're like, well, it doesn't doesn't feel very mild. Um, I read, I don't know if you ever heard of The Onion. It's a parody newspaper that's been produced in the States for years. They had a headline there last week, which really did resonate. And I think it's a take-home lesson. So, woman puts off going to doctor until symptoms severe enough for him to believe her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sounds, Sounds pretty said, accurate. Achingly, yeah. depressingly, awfully mm. familiar. And I think endometriosis very much lives in that space where people are told they have mild endometriosis, but they're crippled. Crippled with, with pain. They are crippled I know, with pain. I, I have quite a few close friends who there we suffer are. very badly. You know, and, and again, old white dude saying, oh, your endometriosis is mild. That's singularly unhelpful. So how we grade it and how we manage it again no more than with the pcos we should be looking at the symptoms what does endometriosis cause it causes pain pain with periods pain with intercourse pain with bowel motions it's pain related it doesn't necessarily cause heavier periods although you can get a kind of endometriosis like uh, syndrome called adenomyosis which is where you get endometrium tissue in the muscle of the wall of the womb which can cause again this big inflammatory change mm. this, again you'll see a bit of a swelling in the uterus there and that can cause heavier periods too. So, so how does it prevent uh, a pregnancy occurring naturally? So, so what's interesting is endometriosis has an impact on every single aspect of uh, female's fertility. So it'll have an impact on egg numbers, egg transport, sperm transport, embryo transport, and implantation. So egg numbers, egg quality, everything. So everything is harder. Everything's harder. The one it probably has the least impact on is implantation but it, but depending on how severe it is with our with the caveat that we're limited in our understanding of this so we know even if you have very mild endometriosis like a couple of spots dotted around the pelvis if you analyze the follicular fluid the fluid that the egg developing egg matures in in somebody with mild endometriosis versus somebody who has no endometriosis at all even if that endometriosis is not in the ovaries you're still going to see differences in the immunological markers within that follicular fluid. And there'll be more pro-inflammatory cytokines and whatnot in the endometriosis. So sufferers, follicles. So we know it's having an impact on eggs right out of the gate. You know, we don't quite know what causes it. Uh, there was a lovely theory of retrograde menstruation. So the lining of the womb goes up through the tubes and falls into the pelvis and sticks there and lodges there. You can see evidence of endometriosis at a fetal stage so it's not that you know there's yeah. other factors involved as well and what is so what is the treatment so it depends it, what the problem is again rather than labeling somebody you have endometriosis you are a human being who is suffering with a b and yeah. c what so are i a, suppose for us if you know people coming to therapy yeah. are obviously usually wanting to get pregnant yes so if someone presents to you uh they have a previous diagnosis of endometriosis yep. um how would you treat them so um you can either try to get them get them pregnant with fertility assistance be that iui or ivf mm -hmm. or you can do surgery and what is the surgery the surgery would be excision and removal of the endometriosis a laparoscopy keyhole surgery or an open surgery more commonly laparoscopy in this day and age 
uh, to try to remove or zap the endometriosis and improve their fertility. And then after that, you would try to do IVF or you would see if it would happen naturally. So here's where you get into the controversial area. And if you had spoken to me before I started working purely in fertility, one of my interests was minimal access surgery. That's Mm. what I did for years. Um, I was fortunate enough to work in the matter when they started doing laparoscopic hysterectomies there. It was all very exciting. Um, And it was cold steel to heal all the way you know this is this is how we this is how we fix our problems and i'll declare my bias here to a hammer everything looks like a nail if you're a surgeon and you see somebody with endometriosis your your suggestion is going to be unsurprisingly that they should probably have surgery Mm -hmm. if you're an ivf specialist and you see somebody with endometriosis your opinion is probably going to be that they should do ivf okay (laughs) so There's a huge amount of controversy between what's the best approach. Over the last few years, the data is emerging that if you have endometriosis and you want to get pregnant, fertility treatment is probably the best way to go. And that's that's becoming clear, especially if you have, and these words are caveated, mild endometriosis, that zapping that endometriosis off doesn't appear to have a massive impact on your ability to conceive. If you have endometriosis, you should certainly be proactive. And there are conditions where, whereby if there are a lot of cysts in the ovaries, surgery can be indicated. There's no question about that, and I'll happily refer somebody to, to, a, to a good surgeon. But the problem you have there is you really need to go to a surgeon who is very respectful of the fertility component of your goals. And why would they not be? Well, because historically there's been a bit of a gap and a disconnect between obstetrics and gynecology and fertility. I didn't really learn an awful lot of fertility until I started working in the field. Mm -hmm. So most of the time you're going to see a surgeon for symptomatic relief because you're suffering with With your endometriosis. And of course, the easiest thing to do, the, the, the curative system for this is take the ovaries away. You take yep. the ovaries away, you remove the hormonal stimulation, you cure. You put somebody at menopause, you cure their you cure their endometriosis like that. So we have a fix. It's just not a fix you want to do. You're going there because, no, I'm struggling to conceive and my ovaries have these cysts on them. So then you have to take those cysts away. But the more carefully you do that procedure and you take your time and you really do very slowly peel off the cysts and you don't use any electricity to burn... any bleeding points just you water dissection you can preserve the ovaries but that now takes an operation that would have taken an hour and now it's taking five hours okay and there's people with cancer waiting outside yeah and it's really hard to get people there's plenty of people in in ireland with the expertise to do these kind of very complicated convoluted surgeries perhaps not the resources indeed Indeed. okay okay so it is completely possible for people with endometriosis to become pregnant very much so very much so i think if you've got symptoms that you think are suggested that you might have endometriosis or if you have a strong family history if your sisters your mom have endometriosis that should ramp up your awareness Mm. of fertility get the amh done earlier get a scan done see what the story is the only way to definitively diagnose endometriosis is with surgery but you'll see severe endometriosis with with an ultrasound scan. So there are things you can do. I'm not proposing everybody goes off and has surgery. For the most part, if somebody says, 
to me, I think I might have endometriosis. What should I do? Well, if you want to get pregnant, you should think about doing fertility treatment. Yeah. I don't think it's worthwhile. And there are people who disagree with me and that's fine. But I don't think it's worthwhile enough doing a laparoscopy surgery as a first line investigation sure despite the fact that it is the best way to look inside the pelvis okay so moving on there is a common misconception that infertility or subfertility is always um the woman's fault yeah like just constantly yeah. i hear this and um that's not true. No. Do you have any idea what the percentage of couples I, tending well, would have a sperm issue? Have you? Now that I know, I think it's about half and half, yeah. is it? Yeah. Maybe 45% boys. Yeah. 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 Some degree of male subfertility um, in uh, approximately half of all cases we see. So, yeah. Well, and first of all, it's important to point out that it's no one's fault. Yes. You know. Yes. Oh, yeah. In, no. Infertility I mean, is no one's fault. The, the, the language we use... Isn't always as respectful enough of that of that truth as it should be, but it's absolutely worth saying. So, this is about problem solving, yeah, diagnostics and treatment all the way. So, at least half the time, when a couple are struggling to conceive, you will see something on the semen analysis. Now, you need to be a bit careful about semen analysis because it's only a single data point in time, and they can go up and down. Every single Hollywood depiction of an abnormal semen analysis that I've ever seen, ever, the man or the couple and or the couple have gone to see a fertility specialist who talks about one thing and one thing only, stress. Every single film, I swear to God, you can start <laughs> rattling them off. I was like, and while it's a factor, I don't think I've ever said, the only thing, the problem, the only problem here is your stress. I've never said that. And I, to, it got to the point where I'm going, am I bad at my job? Am I missing <laughs> something here that this is all about stress? Because it's not. But but some people have very, very sensitive sperm. So small changes in lifestyle and diet and stress levels and cortisol levels can have an impact on sperm. You know? What are the main things that have an impact on sperm quality? Diet, lifestyle, smoking, alcohol, caffeine. Um, we know uh, THC, marijuana, can mm -hmm. can increase the fragility of, of sperm DNA. Okay. You know, it doesn't necessarily drop count uh, so much, but it can increase the fragility of the DNA, I think. Um but being overweight, having other comorbidities, other diseases like high blood pressure mm -hmm. or pro-inflammatory conditions can have an impact on sperm. That being said, you'll see some guys and they're hopelessly out of shape and they've got a terrible lifestyle. And, and they have excellent sperm. Oh, my God. And then I'm sure the other side of the spectrum, you can get people who are super, super, Mr. super. Mr. Hardbody and he's yeah, doing yeah. everything right. Now, the other thing, aha, the same Mr. Hardbody. Steroids, <laughs> steroids, steroids, steroids is the... Is the is the big riser at the moment. People, more and more, people are using mm. uh, testosterone, PEDs, um, steroid therapy to help build muscle mass. And quickly. would that have a long-term effect on your sperm? Usually not, potentially yes. So some people, it can take, if there's loads of different ways. I didn't realize as I was learning to be a reproductive endocrinologist that what I was actually learning to do would be really good at getting people like doping. I now know how it works. <laughs> and I never did before. Um, so I'd be, I, I could, I could uh, make you a could just go I could make into a fist another, of that, yeah. you know, yeah. A side hustle. <laughs> yeah. So there's ways you can take TRT without with trying to minimize that impact. But a lot of it depends on the type, the duration, it's a very unregulated marketplace, so you're not quite sure what you're getting or, or what you're using. Some men, it'll knock out their sperm production completely. Mm. And in a proportion of those, those changes can be irreversible, yes. And would you think that 
in that case, if I'm this completely off topic, but would it be an idea for for people if they really do want to go down that route, but they do want to have kids in the future to perhaps freeze some? 100 percent. And I think what we should be really trying to do is rather than saying, oh, I can't believe you use TRT, because I think it really is very, very commonplace now. Yeah. And like, you know, everyone's going to do what they want to do. This is it. So rather than stigmatizing it and saying, like, yeah, if you're going to do it, freeze, freeze some sperm and at least have that as a backup. I would love to see more sperm freezing happen. Yeah, because it's not that common. It's very rare. And I mean, when we think of sperm freezing, we generally historically thought of it in one of three ways. I'm going for treatment as part of a couple and I'm not going to be available on the day. Fine. I am I have been given a diagnosis of cancer mm-hmm. and I'm going to be rendered azospermic by surgery or chemotherapy. Or I am an FTM yeah. trans and I'm thinking yeah. about, uh, about backing up. And that's fine. But we should really be throwing it wider than that. We should be thinking about people who are who are using TRT. We should be thinking, we should be thinking of doing this as a routine for anybody who's about to have a vasectomy. Yeah, it's so easy to do. Yeah, and oh yeah, it's a lot easier to freeze sperm than it is to freeze eggs. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> so you say. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it is. Let's, let's, yeah, let's be, let's uh, be honest here. Fair. Yes, it is. So under those, I mean, I'm not saying the number of men who want to have a child post-vasectomy is high, but those men who want to have a child post-vasectomy, they're undergoing reversals, which have very, very variable benefits. And mm-hmm. a lot of those men wind up having to do IVF or ICSI anyway. Mm-hmm. So if you had sperm frozen there, again, how accessible is it? How easy is it? How much hassle is it? What's the cost? All that. You have to parse that out. But if somebody's going for a vasectomy, I'm not proposing that somebody who wants to, a female who wants to be sterilized, have a tubal ligation, should have her eggs frozen. Okay, but that's because, as we just said, egg freezing is difficult and generally those people are a little bit older anyway, so the eggs are of lower quality. Most guys are vasectomy. The sperm is still fine. Yeah. And it's relatively easy to do. So why, why wouldn't it be routine to offer it? And done in the majority of cases. It just doesn't, doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about age. We kind of touched on it. Um, yeah. Does, obviously, I think everybody knows at this point that as you get older, it can be more difficult yes. um, to conceive. Why is that? And is it different for eggs? That's right. That's yeah, right. so it, it is different, but also not. Mm-hmm. So everything gets worse as you get older. Just in general you in life. A, you make a noise when you stand up and then you know, oh, wow, I've, I've, I've hit on something there. Um, so very, very clearly, we've, we know full well that uh, eggs decline as you get older. And that decline probably starts in your 30s and gets much, much worse. But it can 40s. start earlier, right? 100%. Okay. Yes, of course. But I'm just speaking the generality. Yeah. We used to think that sperm wasn't... Um, Age amenable to to such yeah. uh, such changes, but now we know it is. Sperm counts drop as you get old. Sperm counts are dropping anyway. We'll circle back to that. Um, sperm counts drop, motility drops, quality drops. The degree of fragmentation in the DNA rises as you get older. The thing about sperm is though you've got millions of them. Yeah. So you've got a higher. And they wage. regenerate. Don't they? Well, yeah, it's not, sort, not re, it's sort well, of the, the same the thing. Wrong... Yeah, no, but you, you, they turn over. But you're not they, born with like a limited number of sperm. No, not in the same way yeah. as, 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 as with eggs. Um, but you do regenerate, so you can change. And 
because you've got such a weight of numbers on them that the good sperm tend to tend to yeah. work out longer. But certainly, as you get older, as a male, you are more likely to give sperm that will contribute to a child which will have be end in miscarriage or a chromosomal or structural problem. No question about it. As, as you get older, it does get worse. Not to the same extent as it does with women. They, they outstrip men badly as they get older. The effects are much, much more, but it is still there. And usually for, in, back in the past, the C, a semen analysis would be a standard test that we do for everybody, every male coming through. If somebody's the other side of 40, now I would generally also recommend doing a DNA fragmentation test as well. And what is that? So... Do we have two or three minutes? We do. Go okay. for it. So all cells in your body have DNA in them. Mm -hmm. All right. And that DNA is the blueprint for how to make and maintain a cell. DNA gets damaged every day. Anything that stresses a cell, oxidative stress, causes radiation. Like sunlight. Things that damage cells, damage the DNA within cells. Okay. Cells have the ability to repair their own DNA. Patch it back up and carry on. When a cell loses the ability to repair its DNA, it triggers its own cell death a few days later. It's a thing called cellular apoptosis. It's one of the major reasons it why... Sounds awful. Well, no, it's why your skin flakes off. It's, it's, okay, that, it's that core mechanism for how we regenerate ourselves. Okay. It's really, really important. Sperm are different. Sperm cannot repair their own DNA and, and will not recognize when that DNA is damaged. So as a compensatory mechanism for that lack of ability, the DNA in sperm is coiled and packed more tightly than it is in other cells, making it resistant to damage from oxidative stress. What a DNA fragmentation index does, to a greater or lesser extent, is not tell you how damaged that DNA, but rather how susceptible to damage it is, how uncoiled or unraveled it is. Because the more it is, the more likely it is to get damaged, the DNA, the sperm doesn't recognize that the sperm has damaged DNA, so it contributes a defective blueprint to the egg to make a defective blueprint for the embryo, which results in failure of miscarriage. Okay, so if you had a DNA fragmentation uh -huh. done and you were faced with these results... And it was high. So half the time, 50% of the time, the changes, that you can resolve it to a greater or lesser extent with diet, lifestyle, and supplementation. Half the time, you cannot. And this is where our understanding of this whole thing becomes very, very imperfect. And there's lots of theories, and there's loads of different ways of measuring this. And I'm sure if there's experts, they'll be going, oh, he's wrong, he's not talking about this. this is, I've given very much a Cliff Notes version of this. Um, but some people, it's very amenable treatment. Some people, it's not. It's still controversial mm. in that you could make an argument, oh, that's completely irrelevant. But we're, we're kind of there, thereabouts. It definitely has a role to play. And it's another way. And perhaps we think that DNA fragmentation rises as you get older. And that's so if you're not seeing a diminution in sperm in terms of the count or the movement or the appearance of the sperm. But maybe we are seeing we are a seeing higher it. rate yeah, exactly. fragmentation. Here's a question. Are sperm cells the only ones that don't? do that oh, within the body off the top of my head because that's just really interesting because yeah. it's like why would it just be sperm cells so they found if memory serves and really going out on a limb here now they found out about about it by accident they okay. were looking for what well, isn't that how dna like, fragmentation a lot of stuff happens <laughs> and, and repair in cells and they just decided to use sperm and then the sperm was suddenly behaving completely differently to how to how the theory had gone. Yeah. wait a minute these these aren't repairing themselves oh oh wow there's something fundamentally different about sperm 
I'm I can't gonna, remember. I'm going to have to go look that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So very, I think there might be another one, but, um, but I off the top of my head, I can't remember. Okay, so here's a question. If um, someone came to you and there was female and male factor mm-hmm. infertility, they were getting a bit older, maybe early 40s, how likely is it that someone would have success with fertility treatment and i know that's asking how long is a piece of string that's like a completely crazy question (laughs) seven is the number yeah you know because a lot of people maybe have have tried have had unsuccessful cycles and they just really want to know is it worth putting myself through this so yeah I'm, i'm gonna evade the question slightly but try to answer it every single woman or couple who come in through the door of a fertility clinic who have tests done and who are contemplating IVF or ICSI especially we won't always get it right but that person should be given a number mm. a raw number and that percentage number they given should be the chances of a live birth from this completed process doing it once Okay, now you have to think cleverly if you've got somebody young and you think you're going to get four embryos from from a cycle, say you do really well, you get four embryos. The fastest way to get that person pregnant would be to put all four embryos back in together. But obviously we're not going to do that because it'd be mad. All right, we'll transfer the embryos. We've talked about that before. Yes. It's mad to put in four embryos. You'd have to be out of your mind to put two in if you were young and healthy. Stop looking at me like that. (laughs) Um, So... So you ha- you're thinking in terms of the cumulative chance of a of a live birth from all those embryos. Now, there's various little algorithm computer programs, IVF predict and things like that, which which will give you that information. If you spent long enough working in the field, you kind of have it in your brain already. You can mm. do the sums. So what you have to do is two things. One, you have to tell that couple, for we'll say couple just for the purpose of the conversation. You have to tell that couple what that percentage chance of a live birth from doing IVF is. And then the second thing, and it's a much harder task, make sure they understand what that means. Yeah. Because some people don't have a nod. And fair enough. They think that 5% is brilliant. They think that 95% is low. They think that the difference between 95% and 100% is the same as the difference between 0% and 5%. And yeah. it's not. You know? Yeah. It's not how these things work at all. So... Um, you have to make sure they can understand those numbers. And I do think you should write all that down. Um, and I think that's at the core of what we should be offering as fertility services. Because it's not our job to tell people what to want. Mm. It's not even our job to tell people what to do. Within the confines of safe, ethical practice, it is our job to make sure that patients and the clients that we're caring for are appropriately educated to make those decisions themselves so you said somebody mid 40s trying for a while factors on both sides the sad reality is like in so many things male factor is much easier to deal with than female factor mm-hmm. ICSI covers a multitude of sins mm-hmm. if we've got a good looking mobile sperm ICSI will you only need one exactly um so generally if it's male factor that's almost like a good thing that's a that's a problem yeah. with the solution but if somebody's 42 years old, they might only have a 10 to 12% chance of a live birth, depending on circumstance. And, and that's like kind that. of per cycle. And that's per cycle, yeah. you know, and that's not high. So and you're looking at, you, you could be just doing cycle upon cycle and even still you're not, yeah. well, I guess anything in fertility is never guaranteed. It was a number of years ago. I was with a couple, it was a little anecdote. 
and I was aware just as the conversation was going that she didn't have the same appreciation that I had that we had challenges in this case I hadn't met them before so I was very gently and carefully trying to work ourselves to the point of the conversation where I can talk realistically about chances of success so I was trying to be nice about it so eventually I got there I said look we can do we can do IVF we can do this we can do the test we can do this. but almost regardless of these test results no matter how hard we try you are on your chance of having a baby from this process is four to five percent and she got very upset uh she became acutely upset herself and her husband um we took a few minutes got ourselves together and continued the consultation and during the consultation we're still talking about the next steps and what we do and she said she said you know that that number is so much lower than i expected to hear mm. today but it's still a chance and i still want to go for it i went okay that's reasonable and then she said but still 45 percent that's terrible she thought you said four t5 and not four two five jesus and it was only that her husband he had he had understood yeah and corrected her so i didn't have to thanks be to the good god so one that's there's a whole pile of learnings to be taken from that Mm. one enunciation yeah, so get that right Say next your time, words John. Better. Yeah, yeah. Speak, speak good. Like. Speak good words. <laughs> um, and two, don't feel for a minute that you know what a patient's expectations are. Yeah, because to you, you know, forty-five percent knock it out of the yeah, park d- all day long. Oh my god, forty-five <laughs> percent is like amazing. Yeah, that's that's absolutely. But to, to someone else, to some, that, that to might be very else, low. That was very low, and yeah. to her, that was very very low. Yeah. So. That educational piece, and it has to be done sensitively, it has to be done carefully, but that's at the core of what we do. Um, What we do, like fertility treatment is limited. There's no question compared to other areas of medicine where if you've got a problem with your appendix, you get your appendix taken out. You don't have a conversation with a surgeon who goes, look, there's about a 90% chance that this will go well. There's about a 10 or 20% chance that we're just going to make a complete arse of it and you'll be in trouble. Like there's risks with surgery, but they're small. Like the failure rate for fertility treatment is so much higher than the failure rate in other areas of modern medicine. And we're doing our best and it's getting yeah. better all the time. But it still kind of sucks and it still takes a few efforts and it's still a long, hard road. So you have to get people on board at the start. You can't send bounce away going, and we're, we're, we're all fighting against it's okay if it doesn't work out i'll just go and do ivf mm. it ain't that simple that's why it all keeps coming back to education get educated at an earlier stage and then you might avoid those pitfalls or if you do come in you won't be talking to the likes of somebody like me who's yeah. giving you awful numbers that you just never wanted to hear in your life yeah. and then you head out to the car park and dissolve into floods of tears yeah. it's awful awful um wanted to end on two questions putting you on the spot here with if you can if you can pull from your memory two situations so i'd love to hear if you ever had a case where it was very unlikely that it was going to happen and it did and you know i can ha- think of one that mostly part most okay yeah and how that was and then the other side uh where it didn't work out and i think we'll probably do a whole episode on like you know yeah, that's, how that's to deal with that's that really good. so 
So I remember there was there was a woman came in to me. She was single. She wanted to use donor sperm. She was 31 years old, and we did an AMH, and it was zero point squat. Wow. Like it was nothing. And she went off and she did some reading. Actually, she'd had the MH before she ever saw me. So when she came in, she'd, she'd had it done. And she'd done some reading. She spoke to some people and said, no, you just can't get pregnant. It was real back in the day. Oh, that AMH, that's your fertility test. And what I said to her was, no, actually, look, this isn't terrible. This isn't as, it's not great news, but it's not nearly as terrible as, as you think. I think you're young. You're still ovulating. There's eggs there. You absolutely need to get moving now. And that was the kicker for her. She did not want to get pregnant at that point mm-hmm. in time. She just, it was one of those cases where she did the test to get the reassurance that she could. And then she was faced with this information. And she was and faced was, with this yeah. horrific dilemma. And it, she took a little bit of time, came around, did treatment. I think it was only IUI she did in the heat of the hunt and uh, got pregnant. She was just disproportionately grateful, as some people are. So I just, job you know because <laughs> great but she was she was so happy and uh, she was really happy that this it had been a really crappy journey mm. but she got the outcome she wanted mm-hmm. out of it and there was all kinds of ups and downs with it and that was very very gratifying i mean i've had plenty of patients see enough people where you're not waving a shroud but you're being very honest and realistic about their chances and uh, then they just go and they just knock it out of the park and they do brilliantly. And you go, okay, stay with the stats, John. Stay with the stats. You, gotta, you know, because you, you don't want to get carried away yourself. The ones that break your heart are the second cohort where you've got somebody young and healthy and you let your own bias get in the way. And much and all as you try to be reserved, The you really feel... It's going to work. It's going to work. Like you have a little private conversation in the car and you're talking to her. It's going, oh no, she'll get pregnant this cycle. You know, yeah. we'd all be guilty of that. And... I've, I've learned the hard way that it doesn't always work out that well and just you can get lots of eggs and they can all be terrible and now you suddenly blink and you're three cycles in and you're 20 grand in the hole and you've had one embryo to show for your troubles and you're 32 years old and some some doctor's talking to you about egg donation yeah and that's heartbreaking yeah that is really really heartbreaking and one of the reasons it's heartbreaking is because you feel like you got it wrong at the outset mm. that you weren't pessimistic enough with them yeah so um, maybe they would have and uh, so i think they probably still would she still have to go through it to get there i know but you often i've often thought, oh god should i've been more guy but again you have to believe in the statistics if i've got somebody who's 30 years old and they're coming in with tubal factor and everything else is fine i know that with enough time and effort if i can do a couple of cycles i've got a greater than 90 percent chance that they'll have a baby at the end of it with enough work not yeah. necessarily one cycle but with enough work get them across the line but then that's not 100 percent. and the trap we're all guilty of is falling into 90 equals 100 yeah 80 equals 100 yeah if we just zero keep equals doing 10 it, eventually it, it will happen because course, that's not true and of course that's not what the statistics mean at all but yeah more often than not you do get you do live within that framework yeah, well, I guess that's all part and parcel of um, this field of medicine. Absolutely. And the wonderful world of fertility. My oh my. <sighs> Been lovely chatting to you. You too. You too. Let's do it again. Mm-hmm.